Before we jump in today, uh, first of all, if I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina. I have the wonderful opportunity to serve here at Firewall Bible Fellowship as the transitional pastor. And we are really glad that you are here. And those of you who are joining us online, welcome. Uh, if you notice, we did not, if you're a regular attender here, we did not do communion uh, earlier in the service. The reason why is we're actually preaching on communion today. So we are going to kind of finish or we're going to culminate our practice together as we unpack the theology of the Lord's table is to take communion together. So we're going to do that after today's message. So I want to go ahead and just give a shout out. Thank you to Kevin Davis for stepping in last week, for KD stepping in, one of our elders. Uh, as many of you know, my grandmother passed away and I had the opportunity uh, to do a service here locally and then we basically took that and we did a service in my hometown where most of our family was and thank you guys for many of you who have sent cards to us, have sent text messages and been praying for us, giving us words of encouragement during this time as it's been very difficult for my family and I. And so it was good to be able to be with them in Massachusetts and last Sunday get to share at my spiritual dad's church and so that was good. And, uh, but I am happy to be back. And I'd also like to encourage you with something else as well. Is that I would encourage you guys, if Firewheel is your home, pray for your church and pray for the staff and elders. Please make us as constant in the rotation of your prayer requests. We covet your prayers. There's a lot of things going on with a lot of us individually, and it seems like a kind of spiritual attack in many ways, and we definitely can use some fellow saints to come alongside of us and pray with us. So would you please join us in that endeavor to be able to continue to pray for our church, our, uh, our elders, and our staff. So we're jumping back into our series we started a couple weeks ago called The Table. Thus, the beautiful tablescape that we have here. So the whole purpose of this series is to look at the image or metaphor of the table that is found throughout Scripture and explore the role that it plays in building community within the church and connecting to those outside of the church as well. We started a couple weeks ago by looking at a dinner party. And a dinner party that had uh, two different groups of people that were invited or were participating in this dinner party. And it was an unusual dinner party to say the least. We looked at the calling of Matthew the tax collector and how he then hosted a dinner party at his home. And it just so happened, tax collectors know other tax collectors. And they know sinners. And here's Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners. So there was two groups of people that were there that day. They were the wrong people, proverbially speaking air quotes, those were the tax collectors and sinners. And then there were the right people, so to speak, which were the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were the self-righteous people who were judging Jesus based upon those he kept company with as he sat around the table eating with tax collectors and sinners. Don't you know your master's eating with those people? How come he's sitting there and eating with them? You know, no rabbi would do that, would sit there and eat with these tax collectors and sinners. But we learned very quickly, our one true statement was this, that everyone is invited to Jesus' table. Everyone is invited to Jesus' table. So when Jesus is part of a dinner party, he's inviting everybody. And he's inviting people who may not look like you, may not talk like you, may not think like you, may not vote like you. And it doesn't matter that all of those people are also invited to the table. So my challenge to you was then, who's going to be invited to your table? Who would you sit across from and share a meal with, even if they're a person that doesn't always agree with the things that you agree with? So today, we're going to look at the Lord's table. We're going to look at communion. So how many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C. before? Show of hands. Anybody ever been to our nation's capital? All right. So a good number of you have been to our nation's capital. So if you've been to our nation's capital, it is likely that you have visited some of the memorials around D.C. Anybody visit the memorials around D.C.? So it's really cool, especially during nighttime, to actually take night tours or kind of visit them at night. Especially, I love Lincoln at night. Or if you go to the Jefferson at night, it's really pretty when you look at it at night. But I wanted to show you a few pictures of a journey from D.C. So I've been to D.C. twice, and these pictures were taken over, I mean, this was like 2008-ish, okay, that I took these pictures. Uh, this was well before uh, iPhone 14s and Pixel cameras, okay? So still took it with a digital camera, and actually I'm like, these held up pretty good. But um, so this is a picture of the Washington Monument. Probably better stated, it should be called a Washington Memorial instead of Monument. But the Washington Monument, of course, in honor of our first president. 
And Washington was a member of the Continental Congress and later the leader of the Continental Army during the American Revolution against Britain and also known for being our first president. And so when you go to this place and it's named after him, after George Washington, you can't help but think about the first president of the United States. All right, let's look at another one, which is my favorite, Jefferson. So this is, the, this is the inside looking down. I took this picture so I could have the rotunda and the way it looked at the top. This was my screensaver for like years. I loved this picture. So this is a picture inside the Jefferson Memorial and uh, in honor of our third president, Thomas Jefferson, another member of the Continental Congress and the one who actually penned the Declaration of Independence. One more. You know this guy. The Lincoln Memorial in honor of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was a lawyer who ran for many offices in government, having lost eight different times. Uh, he's a, a pillar of one who just kept going before he was ultimately, uh, you know, voted in as president. And we all know Lincoln as the president who ended slavery, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, and he is one of only four presidents to be assassinated. And so you look at, you go to D.C., you go to these different places, and I didn't come, you didn't come to church today to get a history lesson, but... The point I am trying to make is that when you visit D.C. and you visit these monuments erected in honor of these people, you can't help but call to remembrance their lives, the things you know about them, the things you learned in school, all those different things. You're actively, your mind engages and thinks about, you can't look at the Washington Monument without thinking about Washington. Same thing with Lincoln, same thing with Jefferson. So what is a memorial? I was like, what is a memorial? I wanted to, to define that. So according to Webster's, a memorial is this, something created to honor a person who has died or to remember people of an event in which many people died, serving to preserve remembrance. Really interesting, that last statement, serving to preserve remembrance. So just like memorials cause us to remember the actions of some of these men that we just looked at today. Today we're going to talk about the Lord's table, or we're going to use, you may hear other words in today's message, Lord's table, communion, Eucharist. Anybody ever heard the term Eucharist before, depending upon what tradition you grew up in? Those terms will be used synonymously for what we call communion and what we practice throughout this message. But the Lord's table, if you think about it, is a memorial to the great actions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it's much more than a memorial. It isn't something where we just remember. And I hope that today, as we unpack the theology of communion, we're going to look at the way that communion basically helps us to look in four different directions. Okay, we're going to look at four different directions. But here's my one truth statement for you. Communion is the costliest meal we will ever consume. Communion is the most costliest meal we will ever consume. No matter what the best restaurant you've ever been to, if you paid $100 a plate at a banquet event, it doesn't matter. Communion is the most costliest meal we will ever consume, okay? So we're going to open our text today. If you have a Bible and want to follow along on the screen, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 26. Very familiar passage of Scripture, but I really hope that today, as we unpack the theology of communion, that we're going to see four things that the Lord's table causes us to look at, and I really hope that this brings some significance and depth to what we do every Sunday. I love the fact that here at Firewell we celebrate communion every Sunday. And not only do I love that, because historically, that is how the church has really always practiced it. It's a very common and more modern practice to practice communion only once a month or once a quarter, depending upon how you actually grew up. It was very common in the early church for them to practice it every time they got together. And it's always good to keep the gospel before us. Y'all believe that? Isn't it always good to keep the gospel and Jesus' work before us? So I love taking communion every Sunday, all right? So, as we dive in, we're going to look at, as I said, four things the Lord's table causes us to look at. So, number one, the Lord's table causes us to look backward. Look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 17. We're going to look at verse 17, and then we're going to come down, drop down. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Look at verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So this 
as we get into the story, this is the story of Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has happened. This is basically the last 24 hours before he goes to the cross. And we're setting up the scene for the Last Supper. Now, as he's making preparations and tells the disciples to go out and to prepare the upper room where they're going to celebrate the Last Supper, this gives us a little context into the looking back of uh, the Lord's Supper, of what it actually means. This is a question that answers the context for us a little bit. Here we are at this scene, right, as they're preparing the Passover, but it's linked to something else. Not only is it linked to the Passover, but it's also linked to something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if you know anything about Old Testament history, the Passover was celebrated in conjunction with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven to eight days long. The Passover was considered part of that. They were kind of melded together in some ways. But the Passover was a separate feast, a separate celebration outside of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They just happened to coincide with one another, served in conjunction with one another. But if you remember anything about the Passover, the Passover is, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, there's multiple steps of the Passover. It's actually pretty cool if you ever go to a Passover Seder to see the significance theologically of each individual piece in each individual step. But the culmination of the Passover celebration is the eating of the Passover lamb. So the Passover lamb was slaughtered by a family, and it was supposed to be a lamb that was out without spot or blemish, and that lamb was then consumed in a meal that was shared by the whole family of which the father or the patriarch of that family, maybe a grandfather, was the one who presided over the event. And the whole reason for this event and gathering of the family was to basically recount the history of God's deliverance of the people of Israel through tangible expressions of symbols to be able to cause them to remember everything that God had done. It was the celebration of the deliverance of the people of Israel, specifically from the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13 says this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you. Thus, pass over. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There's so much more that could be said here than we could say in this short time. But remember that there was ten plagues in Egypt. The last plague was the death of the firstborn, right? And so that was the last plague that God sent upon the homes of the Egyptians. And those Israelites that did not take the blood of the Passover lamb and put it over the doorposts of their homes, then the death angel would visit them as well. But if the blood was applied, then, the death, then death passed over them that they would basically receive and they would be spared their lives. God's judgment came. But God's judgment did not come to those whose blood, the blood of the Passover lamb was on their door. It was not carried out against them. Because a lamb had been sacrificed in their place, a lamb without spot or blemish. This is a picture, a beautiful picture of Jesus. Because of his shed blood, those who believe in him will not also experience the judgment that comes in death, but will be passed over it, so to speak, because we now reside under the lamb of God and underneath the authority of his blood as the perfect spotless lamb. John the baptizer called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the new Passover lamb in that way. So his sacrifice, his blood, then spares our life from judgment. So that way we are received as part of his kingdom. For the Israelites and for those disciples who are now going to partake this meal, this meal is going to take on significance in a different way to them. Because it's looking back at their history. These are a bunch of Jews who think that they're coming, you know, uh, they're in Judaism and had been practicing Judaism. And now here comes Christ and he's taking some elements of Judaism and bringing new definition to some of those things. But we see the connection with the past. They're looking backward toward the Passover as they celebrate. They're remembering the deliverance of God, but Jesus is going to change that a little bit. But for them, it was a connection to the past. We call this in theology foreshadowing. In the Old Testament, we see the foreshadowing of the lamb who was going to come to take away the sin of the world in the Passover lamb. So what they only saw in part and what they celebrated as God's deliverance, God's deliverer now was with his disciples right then and there to show them, to tell them, I am that lamb. I am the one who came to take away the sin of the world.
So we look back. For the disciples, it links to an element and a time in their history. And Jesus is going to bring new meaning to that. But for us, in some ways, we also look back. This side of the cross, and now that Jesus has been resurrected, we also look back. But we look back not just to the cross, we also look back to that history, into the history of the Passover and all that it means for the people of God have been delivered throughout generations. So we look back just like they did. So the Lord's table causes us to look back as we remember. Now let's jump down to verse 26, the beginning part. The Lord's table not only causes us to look backwards, it also causes us to look around. To look around. Look at verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, to the disciples. So as I alluded to earlier, the Passover was a meal that was shared with families. It was a communal thing. They did it around the table, and they shared this meal, and they were speaking about their history, and they were bringing, uh, you know, significance to what was partaking and they were participating in. Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not something done individually, but it's done relationally. The Lord's Supper is something we do in community. It's not something that we do individually. Please hear what I just said. The Lord's Supper is something that brings all of the people of God really together under the banner of that Passover lamb, under the banner of Jesus. It's a communal thing we do together as the people of God. It's not something done as we do as individuals. It's done relationally between people who are part of God's family with Jesus presiding and being over the event. I believe that every Sunday that we take communion, there are many different views on what the actual symbols mean what the bread and wine means. Some traditions believe it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. Some other ones believe that Jesus is in, through, above, and around the elements. There's like four or five major views, but here's the main point. I believe that when we celebrate it together as the people of God, God is present. There's no denying that reality. I believe that when we come to the table, God is present with us. Do you believe God is present when we celebrate and we come to the table? I believe he's with us. Here is a picture that we're going to see of a meal that is shared with a group of friends who love their master and their master loves them. This is why I believe that when we take communion, communion is something that is done for only those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Jesus didn't do this with anybody else. He's doing it with his 12. He's doing it with his people, with his peeps. He's doing it with them, those who believe in him and everything that he's about. So communion is a meal that is shared amongst the people of God. Historically, even if you go back to church history, sometimes there were those who believed that you couldn't even take communion, even if you were a believer in Jesus, had you not even been baptized. That it was part of a baptismal rite. Once you were baptized, then you were baptized into the church, and as a participant in the church, then you can then partake of communion. Regardless of whatever that, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that, but one thing I do think is pretty clear is that the communion meal is a family meal. It's not for people who don't believe in Jesus. Why? Because it doesn't have any significance to them. To them, it's just crackers and juice. To them... Who cares that a guy named Jesus died? To them, it's not personal because that sacrifice is not applied to them. So we're not policing you at Firewheel whether or not you received Christ, okay, in any way. But I do believe theologically it would be accurate to say that the taking of communion is something that only believers partake in, okay? It's a communal event. It's something that we do as we gather together in the unity as the many that are one in Christ. It's one thing that brings us together. As many, we are one in Christ. It's our one Lord who sacrificed himself, and because of that, all of us can come together and take this meal together. So not only does the Lord's table cause us to look backward, and it causes us to look around, it causes us to look deeper. Let's look deeper into it. Look at the end of verse 26. The end of verse 26 says this, take, eat, this is my body. Remember the broken bread he just talked about. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. 
So broken bread, broken body equals broken body. The wine, his shed blood. Two different elements, so to speak, that represent two different realities about Jesus. His broken body and his shed blood. Remember something, though. Remember what's happening in this story. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. That's a very important piece to this story. Jesus is telling them about a reality that is eminent. He is showing them, not only is he bringing theological significance, but he's also foretelling them about his coming death again, as he did numerous times over. But he hasn't gone to the cross yet. About 24 hours from now, he's going to be. And I can believe that those disciples, I can imagine when they saw, when they heard and they saw him on the cross, then at that point, this becomes very real. What he was saying about broken body, shed blood. All that Jesus is saying and doing right now will not be fully understood until he actually dies. That will connect everything together from the Passover, which was foreshadowed, which foreshadowed his sacrifice. They were looking backwards at that time, which now would make them be able to look in the present as they saw their Savior, the sacrificial lamb, on a cross. Jesus didn't merely identify with the Passover lamb. In the Passover, bread and wine were two symbols, but they existed alongside the lamb. Jesus is saying, no, I am that bread, I am that wine, I am that lamb. I'm not just identifying with them, I am that replacement. This is what it means to do new covenant. That I am this new lamb that is going to provide the sacrifice that is necessary. This eminent reality that looks forward. Jesus makes a new covenant in his blood. He says that this is the new covenant which would replace the old covenant between God and his people. Because atonement for sin, the covering over sin, always required the shedding of blood. Under the old covenant, that was the shedding of blood of animals, but it was never sufficient as Hebrews tells us. But under the new covenant is the blood of Jesus, once and for all, sprinkled upon the mercy seat. That is the once and for all sacrifice that is always payable and never is replaced. Even when Jesus walked this earth, it was prophesied back in the Old Testament by Jeremiah that the Lord would make a new covenant with his people that Jesus is enacting. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, so not something external that they would follow, but now would be in them. And on their hearts I will write it, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, they will not teach again each man his own neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The commentator Leon Morris, talking about this new covenant, says this, When Jesus spoke of his blood of the new covenant, he was surely claiming that at the cost of his death, he was about to inaugurate a new covenant of which the prophet Jeremiah had spoken. This was a big claim. Jesus was saying that his death would be central to the relationship between God and the people of God. It would be the means of cleansing from past sins and consecrating to a new life of service to God. It would be the establishing of a covenant that was based not on people's keeping it, not on the external law, but on God's forgiveness. Aren't you grateful that the covenant that we have with God is not based upon our performance, did you know that you are saved by works? They're just not yours. We're saved by the works of a gracious God who did what we cannot do. And in light of his sacrifice, we can now receive his forgiveness. And it's not based upon us keeping it. It's based upon his magnificent grace. So when you take communion later today, it's not just bread and juice. 
I hope those elements take on a different meaning for you in light of this story. Because we all know that in the natural, it's not like something happens that physically it becomes a T-bone steak or something of that nature. It's crackers and it's juice in the natural, so to speak. But we often can trivialize the depth of what is happening and what it really means to celebrate around the Lord's table. Just because it becomes routine or just because we are, it's just something we're used to doing or just because it's just crackers and juice. No, it's not. It's not. What this table represents is the very reason why you and I are here. If this table did not have, if the Lord's table did not have the meaning that I'm sharing with you today, we might as well all never come back to this place. It means nothing. It means nothing. It means nothing unless God had a plan of redemption. It means nothing unless God was going to preserve a people. It means nothing unless God himself, the God-man, died upon a cross. It means nothing if Jesus did not resurrect. It means nothing if Jesus promises us that he will partake with us again in the kingdom, future, future casting what the reality will be in its full, full, in its full fulfillment. It means nothing. We might as well never come back to this place. That's why we do it every week. It's central to our worship. It's about everything we are. It's our hope. It's an expression of his love. It's a way to actively remember as the community to just take a moment in the, the craziness of life to be able to peel back the layers and to just focus upon our God. It's a moment to sit with him and to sit with his people. It's a beautiful moment of worship. Look at verse 29. The last thing the table causes us to do, it causes us to look forward. As I was revisiting this passage this week, this is something I've never thought of before. So the table causes us to look back, to look around, to look deeper, but also to look forward. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus ends the supper with a very interesting vow, because remember, the cross has not taken place yet. But he says that he's going to anticipate something. He's going to anticipate his departure and his eventual return because he's saying, we're going to celebrate this again. We're not doing it after tonight. You're not doing it with me present again, but we will do it again with me present. So he's anticipating something. He's not only giving them a taste and reminding them of what is to come, but he's basically telling them something even greater is coming even further down the line, and we will share this meal again, and we'll do it together. It's not just in the immediate future, but in the coming future, he will celebrate this meal again with his people when the kingdom of God is fully realized. Interestingly enough, in one of my classes this semester, we're doing a class on ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. And I read a book a couple weeks ago that is all about the role of communion and the Eucharist and how it relates to the idea of doing church and like what church is all about. So I'm going to read to you a semi-lengthy quote, but I want to actually pick, to, pick apart a few pieces of it. This quote comes from a book by, uh, by a guy by the name of John Zazulis. He was the Metropolitan of Pergamon. Basically, that means he was a bishop in the Orthodox Church. And in his book, The Eucharistic Communion in the World, he says the following quote, and it's worth quoting in full. Listen to this. The memorial of the Last Supper has several dimensions through it. In the present... The past becomes a new reality. So as we take it now, we do that look backwards, it becomes a present reality that we share, but we also think and we link to the, back, to, to the past. But the future becomes a reality that is already. That, the reality to come is already present in advance due to the nature of the Last Supper. To make the Eucharistic remembrance simply an actualization of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is to have an incomplete and altered understanding of the remembrance. This activity isn't just about what Jesus did on the cross. That's like one piece of it. 
It also links to the historical element. It also links to the future. One piece of it is the fact of these tangible elements representing 24 hours from now that he would die upon a cross. In fact, this is inconsistent with the Last Supper. It would be better to understand it also to include the future. To make the future, the eschaton, that's just a large word that basically means the last things. In, uh, in theology, the study of last things or the study of end times, we call it eschatology. And that's where that word comes from. To make the future, the eschaton, a reality here and now. To understand the remembrance in this way makes the Eucharist not only a representation of the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, but also a foretaste of the kingdom to come. How beautiful is that reality? Every single time you take communion on a Sunday, you are tangibly expressing the gospel. You are touching the gospel. You are participating in the gospel. You are remembering the gospel. But the gospel isn't just an event that happened in history at one time. The gospel isn't a series of things that you just believe. The gospel represents the totality of everything that Jesus was and everything that he comes to do. And so as I celebrate the Lord's Supper, I am thinking back to how God has delivered his people. I am thinking back now this side of the cross, I'm looking back toward the cross. And I am remembering the greatest act of love in human history. But then as I reflect upon the cross, I'm also thinking about, man, I can't wait until I celebrate with him face to face and we actually eat it together. That's what I'm doing as well. When bread and juice is in my face, that becomes reality. Symbols don't need to be anymore. Because now I'll look at him, and I'll call him the Passover lamb. I'll look at him, and I'll tell him, you are the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'll look at him, and I will tell him that you are the reason why I'm here. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. It's not some trite ritual thing that, oh, the church has done for a long time. And no, it's a culmination of worship. It represents the history of the church. It represents the history of the people of God. It represents the redemptive hope of the people of God. And it represents the eschatological reality of the kingdom of God. Of what it's going to be. When he's looking at you and we celebrate it together, I will be their God. They will be my people. It's a foretaste. As the old song says, it's a foretaste of glory divine. We can imagine the heart of a king waiting for the ingathering of his entire family before participating in the meal himself again. It is anticipated for over 2,000 plus years. Imagine how long it's been in his heart. What a grand family meal that'll be. That makes this meal a little bit more important than just juice and crackers, doesn't it? I hope that this sticks with you as we take the opportunity to participate in communion. So communion is the costliest meal we will ever consume. The Lord's table causes us to look backwards, the historical importance. It causes us to look around because it's a family meal shared communally. It causes us to look deeper because Jesus instituted a new covenant through it, through, through which we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. But then it also causes us to look forward because it has connection to the Christ who is coming back. But it also speaks to the future fellowship that we will have as the people of God all gathered together, not separated by boundaries and geography, because we'll all be together partaking of that meal with our gracious King who is the Passover Lamb. That is a beautiful reality. And Lord, I cannot wait till that day. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you that as we look at all that communion represents today, thank you that there is so much depth, so much significance to something, a practice that is so ancient and that we do every single week. I thank you that Firewell is committed to do that on a weekly basis. That it's a, it's a culmination of our worship. And Lord, I do pray that you would uh, help us to keep these things in mind as we participate every week. That it wouldn't just become trite, it wouldn't just become a ritual. But every single week that it would be an active remembrance. That every single week that we would, we would reflect upon the theological significance. But 
ultimately we'll be doing in communion in community with others. And it's so beautiful, Lord, that we get to do this as the body of Christ together. Thank you for everything that it represents. Thank you for the hope that we have only in you, that only comes from you. You are the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Lord, how glorious it will be. Just as you promised your disciples, we hold on to that promise that we will taste of it and we will eat that meal again in the kingdom to come. So to that, Lord, we do say, Lord, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we love you and we praise you. It's in the most precious and holy name of the Lamb that we can pray. Amen. So I'm going to ask Ashby to come up, and we are going to participate in taking communion. Thank you so much, Adrian, for teaching us about the importance of communion, the significance, the gravity. As we learn today, the elements of communion are a powerful symbol, the bread being symbolic of Christ, body broken for us on the cross, the juice symbolic of Christ's blood shed for our sins on the cross. We learn more about the power of Jesus' shed blood in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we deceive ourselves if we say we have no sins. We know from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, as Adrian often says, the two most grace-filled words in the Bible. In Ephesians 2, Paul informs us that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which we once walked. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. As we participate in communion today, let us remember just how dead in our sins we were and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus who made us alive together with Christ. As we sang earlier, yes, this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let us pray. Father God, we love you. We worship you and we rest in your sovereignty. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing your blood to be shed for us on the cross to cleanse us of our sin. Amen. You're invited to the communion tables.
as we do every Sunday as well, we're going to take an opportunity to have prayer. So I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward and we're going to worship like we always do. So uh, I would encourage you, if you need prayer for anything, please allow one of our prayer partners to pray with you, whatever that need may be. It's one way that we could practically love one another. But then also, this is a time for us to engage in worship. So maybe you reflect upon the message that was just shared. Maybe there's something specific in your heart that you need to address with God. Then please take the opportunity to do that. You can stand and worship with us. You can be seated. Um, as Just remember that this is a time, a holy moment for us to participate. And there's just one thing I want to say as well that I neglected to say about communion. I forgot to say this. A number of people always come up to me and tell me, Pastor, unsolicited, I didn't take communion this week. I just didn't feel like I should take communion or to that, you know, something for whatever reason they didn't feel internally that they should take communion. Let me remind you of something. Judas was around that table. In all sincerity, we're never worthy. Don't let your personal feeling, if you're a believer in Jesus, don't let your personal feeling prevent you from coming to the table. It's all the more reason you need to come. We're all broken. We all desperately need Jesus. But what greater a picture and, a and for you to be able to receive the love and the grace of God than be able to take communion as you reflect upon that. Okay? So let's go in and worship and let's pray.
that line that says that I've run to the Father, and it says that I fall into grace. Guys, let's just run after Jesus. Let's just run after God. But when you do, all those things are added to us, and we just find him, and he gives us the grace that we are needed. Can we give the Lord a hand today and just give him an act of worship? Man, y'all may be seated. It's always hard to transition from that point. But I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, and we're going to go ahead and worship the Lord through giving. If it's your first time here, we're really glad that you are here. We'd love for you to please stop by the Connection Center on your way out. Uh, one of our guest services attendants would love to be able to give you a special gift for worshiping with us, gives you a little information about Firewheel. Love just to be able to see how your experience was and just talk to you and see how we can come alongside of you in your spiritual journey. There is a QR code behind me. You can fill out a digital connection card or there's a physical one if you'd like to share some information with us at the Connection Center. But no strings attached. We'd just love to thank you for being here. So please, if you'll stop by, we'll go in and give you that gift. I'm going to go ahead and pray over the offering. We'll show you a few announcements and get you dismissed. So Lord, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to worship through giving. Uh, Lord, you know, we know that you love a cheerful giver. We know that you don't need our money, but money is a tool that we utilize for ministry here on earth. And so Lord, I just thank you. I pray that you bless the gift and the giver, cause it to multiply and help us to be faithful stewards of everything that you provide uh, for us as a church and that you would continue to meet the needs of Firewall Bible Fellowship and every individual. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewall Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewall. April 7th is Good Friday, and we will be having a special service that night at 6.30 p.m. Easter Sunday, bring the family as we celebrate our risen Savior with worship and baptisms. There will be no 9.30 a.m. activities and child care will only be available for two and under. If you are interested in being baptized, visit the Connection Center in the lobby to pick up a form and a pastor will contact you. Do you have the spring cleaning bug? So do we. Cleanup day is May 6th. It is time to replace some of the shrubs on the north side of the church along Toller Road. Each plant is $58. If you would like to donate to the project, you can go online to firewheelbiblefellowship.com, select giving in the menu, and choose landscaping in the drop-down menu, or write a check to Firewheel Bible Fellowship with landscaping in the memo. Come on out for some lovely spring golf at Waterview Golf Club, located in Rowlett, Texas. Prizes, hole contests, and raffle items are all up for grabs. Lunch will be provided. The cost will be $90 per person. All proceeds will help support sending kids to summer camp. We hope to see you out there. For more information on these or any of our other events, go online to firewheelfellowship.com, or you can always check us out on social media. All right, if we get you to stand, we'll go ahead and pray the benediction over you and get you dismissed. And we will continue our series next week. So may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. May our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. See you all next week.